Thanks. It really is a blessing for us as a church. I, I, <laughs> I talk to pastors occasionally, and in the summer, everybody's church attendance goes down because people are traveling. They go on their vacations, and we get Camp Squia and Camp Cockwa staff showing up. So we go up by 80 to 100 college students in summertime, which is awesome. And we are blessed by you guys and thankful to have you. And we, we do want you to know we pray for you all the time and are excited about the ministry that's happening there. Uh, we're in the book of Philippians. We've been working through, uh, we've, we finished up with Esther, now we're moving into the, the book of Philippians. It, it's a letter written from Paul to the church in Philippi. Now Philippi is the, it's the first church Paul planted in Eastern Europe. There's a map, it's going to kind of show you where it, up there in Greece, that's where Philippi was. Paul had gone through there, planted a church, moved on, and now he's writing a letter back to them from jail. He's in prison in Rome and he's writing them a letter. Now, the thing about Philippi was it was a Roman colony, as most places were, but this was like the place that Roman military people went to retire. When they retired from military service, they moved to Philippi. So it was the bastion of Roman allegiance and patriotism in that whole region. Uh, if you want a good comparison for patriotism and country, right, it was the Texas of, of Rome. That's what it was. It was the place where, you know, I'm going to fight for Rome till you pry my sword from my cold, dead hands, right? That was the kind of place it was. So to plant a church there where people were required to say Caesar is Lord and to teach them to say Jesus is Lord made it a difficult place to be the church. And, and they were undergoing persecution and struggle, but still they sent Paul this gift by one of their members, Epaphroditus, while Paul was in prison. And Paul was so moved by the gift, he writes this letter back to the church at Philippi. And now I've, told, I've called the sermon series a powerful poem for the persecuted because it's a different kind of letter. Paul usually writes a letter and he kind of builds an argument. He starts with a point, he moves from here to here, and he's kind of teaching through the letter. Philippians is very different, and I think it's because it came from a place of thankfulness. It really is a, a, an entire letter structured around a poem in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, which we'll cover that next week. It's, this, it's a poem or a song that they sang in the early church, and, and Paul really just reflects about that poem throughout the whole book. We'll talk about that as we get to it more and more. But today we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 26, and kind of set the stage for next week by looking at where Paul is coming from. Okay, um, I'm going to read chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 1 to 26. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. 
As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given, me by, the Spirit, help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, when you read that letter, it's, it really is kind of hard to envision him writing it from prison, right? It's a very upbeat, confident, joyous letter. The whole book is. In fact, a lot of people say the theme of the whole letter was joy. But I want us to look, he's writing from prison, but I want us to look really where, where Paul's coming from. And you've got to see he's coming from a place of confidence, place of confidence. It's written to people who are suffering, right? They're in this patriotic Roman colony. They're saying Jesus is Lord. They're suffering. They're being uh, tortured and, and uh, persecuted. And, and Paul's writing from jail, a place where many of the people receiving the letter think that might be their forwarding address. They may be moving there soon because of what they're saying. But he's full of confidence, and he starts by, by writing to a holy people. It says in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, to all the holy ones. That Greek word is hagios, and it means holy people, to all the saints. Now, there's a great story about Joe and John, who were two really evil brothers that really ran uh, some small town up in the B.C. interior, let's just say. It's, a, it's not a true story, so I can make it anywhere I want it to be. But Joe and John were these horrible guys that corrupted the whole town. They were all about the money. And Joe passed away of a heart attack one night. Well, John comes to the pastor of the local Baptist church. And John says, I want to do the funeral for Joe in your church. And I know your church needs a new roof. And I'm willing to give your church $100,000 if you will say at some point in the funeral that Joe was a saint. And so the pastor feels the tension. Because he's got a roof he's got to put on, but Joe was no saint. So he says, well, I'm going to have to pray about that and think about it. You'll, you'll see my decision during the funeral. Well, during the funeral, he talks for a while, and then he says, Joe was a horrible, horrible man. He was corrupt. He took bribes. He exploited the poor. He, he did horrible things that, that we would never condone or ever want people to do. But compared to his brother John, he was a saint. <laughs> I love that story. I love it. <laughs> and we, we laugh at that, but saint is not a word that we like to use of ourselves. 
There's somebody in here in this church who will remain nameless, Gary Moore, who, <laughs> who likes me to call him Brother Gary, and every now and then, just to upset him, I'll call him Saint Gary, and he just doesn't like that at all. No, it's Brother Gary. But biblically, Paul says these people are saints. The word, that hagios, that Greek word literally means set apart for God. It doesn't necessarily mean perfected yet. It means consecrated and set apart. And Paul is confident that these people reading his letter are set apart. They're saints already. And he's also confident about completion. Verse 6 is a very common verse, so common that we often read over it without thinking. Being confident of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now just let that sink in. He is confident that what God has started in them, he will finish. The project is going to succeed. These people who are being persecuted, who are suffering economic uh, stress because of their confession of Jesus, the people who are, are being thrown into jail, the people who are being tortured, he says, you know what? God is going to succeed. He's going to finish what he started. I love a story, Billy and Ruth Graham. Now, some of you camp staff may not even know who Billy Graham is, but Billy Graham, a famous evangelist, and his wife Ruth, they were driving uh, somewhere in North Carolina, where I grew up. I love that state, and there they go. They're driving, and they come through this long, long period of road construction. And you know what those are like. You stop, you get to route, and there's bumpy roads. It takes forever. And after about a half an hour of stopping and starting and kind of winding around the things, they come to a sign, and you can see ahead of them just smooth pavement, and the sign says, end of construction, Thanks for your patience. And Ruth Graham turns to her husband and she says, that's what should be on my tombstone. End of construction. <laughs> Thanks for your patience. And I love that image, right? Because so often when we're right in the middle of what life is going on and we're blowing it and, and things aren't working the way we thought, we lose the fact that God will finish what he started. Paul is confident of completion and, and he's writing it from jail. Right? This is where he's at. You see, that confidence inspires a very specific prayer. Paul's prayers are often profound, and I think sometimes we read them over, we gloss them. I don't know if we feel like it's too intimate to impinge upon his prayers for the people, but, but they're quite profound. Just look at verses 9 to 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I want you to notice what he says. There's two things in that prayer that really stand out to me. One is this, love is foundational to discernment. Does he pray for their knowledge to increase? Yes. Does he pray for their depth of insight? But in what in what area? He says, I, I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you can begin to discern what is best. You know, we always think of praying that we know more, that we, and, and this is knowing more, but it's within a context of love. Do we, need to, do we need to study? Do we need to increase knowledge? Yes, but there is a deeper, more powerful, transformative thing in us called experience. And what he's saying is, I want both your experience of love coming to you and flowing through you to the world, I want it to grow and abound more and more. I want you to understand. All those things, knowledge, depth of insight, is really important. But it happens in the context of love. That's what I want to grow, he says. Because love transforms us through Jesus. 
He says, so I want this to happen so that you may be pure and blameless, that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness. If your love grows in knowledge and depth of insight, if it abounds more and more, he says, you'll know. And you'll know what's best. You'll be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. See, this is, I, I really promise, this is the only sermon I ever really preach. <laughs> love is what transforms people. The love of God transforms us on an experiential level. It teaches you things that you could never learn just by reading a book or studying them. And, and that is what he's saying. I want your love to abound in not, I want you to get it in knowledge and depth of insight so that all these things will begin to happen. I told my parents, you know, I was so excited when, when we were pregnant first time with Becca and with all four of our kids, I was excited. But the first time, you know, I was a little weak in the knees because you don't, I remember Angela had the ultrasound and I actually had to sit down because I thought, what have I done? <laughs> How am I going to do this, right? And, and so I remember talking with dad about it and, you know, and he was like, son, you'll just, you just don't understand until you have your own. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, dad, whatever, I got it. But when I, every, every one of those four kids, when I held them the first time, you know in a way deeper level how you love them. You know love in a whole different way at that moment. It's, it's, it's love that has increased in knowledge and depth of insight at that moment. And what he's saying to these people is you need to not just know the love, you need to experience it. You need to realize the depth of love that God has for you because that will transform you. You see, Paul's confident. He knows that God has chosen these people. He knows that God is going to finish what he's done and that he's clear on what they need. They need to grow in their love, both understanding of love from God and the way they love one another. How does he know this? Because he's been there. He, then he, the second half of the chapter, he talks about a process of experience and realization. I mean... You've got to realize, as they're reading this, this letter, they're thinking, that may be where we're going to be. How's it going for you in prison, Paul? And th the implicit question underneath that is, if I get sent to prison, how will it go for me? If that happens to me, and it could, because every time I stand up and say, Jesus is Lord, I'm standing up against the Roman Empire, because they say Caesar is Lord. So that could happen to me. And Paul says here, let me tell you about my time in prison. First, he says, it's helped me in seeing my situation clearly. Look at verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He, he sees this bigger picture. Even in prison, he says, I'm, I'm continuing to see God at work. The whole palace guard knows why I'm here. I'm in chains for Christ. And I've been able to share that truth with them. And not only that, but the people around in Rome, the, the brothers and sisters seeing me in prison are emboldened. They're, they're sharing their faith more courageously and more fearlessly because I'm here. You know, it, it looks bad from within inside the prison cell, but as he sees his reality clearly, he says, God is still very much at work. It's that place of confidence. This God who has set people apart and God who will finish, he says, God's going to finish what he started with you. And Paul says, I know that because he's finishing what he started with me. I know that because even in prison, the love that he has for me is helping me to understand the bigger picture. And that's what he's moving to, this, this verse 15 to 19. I, I, I love this section. I wish we, sometimes the lectionary frustrates me because I feel like we have to cover too much ground. But think about what it's like when you're having a hard time, when you've had a difficult time, when uh, suffering, sickness, uh, when you've lost a loved one, 
as human beings, we tend to tunnel in, right? And it's, it's, just, it's a way of coping. We get focused on us, and sometimes people get stuck there. They can't get out of that. They can't get past the, the suffering that they're going through. Poor me syndrome. We see everyone is out to get us. And Paul in prison is the exact opposite. He says, you know what? I know, I know some people are preaching Christ out of the wrong motives. Some people see this as a leadership vacuum in the church because I've been thrown in jail. And so they're, the only reason they're preaching Christ is to try to gain power with those other people. They're trying to make life harder for me by preaching Christ. And he says, in verse 18, well, what does that matter? Who cares? Why? Why can he say that? Why is Paul so sure of that? Because he knows that he's been set apart. He knows that the God who started with him will finish. He knows he's been loved and he's growing in an understanding of that love every day. And so he doesn't have to worry. By every, he says, I don't care what their motives are. Christ is being preached. And that's all that matters. We get so lost. I feel like I've mentioned Facebook in every sermon. But we just... We feel like the world is falling apart because we read Facebook and all these. And I'm like, you know what? God has handled the church okay for the last 2,000 years. I think he can survive Trump and Trudeau. I think he can, right? I just think there's, we, we need to realize that, that God will finish what he starts I love how it ends in verse 19. He says, I know that what has happened for me will turn out for my deliverance. My deliverance. Now, when you're in prison, you think that means getting out, and it might. But in verse 20 to 26, he goes on to talk about what that means. He says in verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So his deliverance might be dying, he's saying. But Christ will be exalted in that. That Christ will be lifted up even in my death? That's, that's, that's a different kind of thinking. And he continues, he says, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. One of these two things will happen, he says, for my deliverance. Either I'll die here in prison and see God face to face, or I'll be released and I'll be with you again. Either way, it's good. Now that is freedom. That is a guy who is not scared by his Facebook feed. Who does not cower because he knows that God is the one driving the bus and that the destination is where he's taking it to. And that we can rest in that no matter how it looks. He does have a sense of what's going to happen. He says in verse 25, convinced of this, that being with you, he says, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. See, what he's really doing there is he's redefining sacrifice. When we look at sacrificing for the kingdom, we really often think of dying for God. But he's saying the sacrifice is not dying. The sacrifice is actually living. I, I, I really would like to, I'm torn between the two. I want to see him face to face, but I'm willing to make the sacrifice of staying here. To walk with you. Once again, how can he do that? How can he say that? Because he knows he's set apart. He knows God's going to finish what he started. His, his love, his idea of God's love for him and his love for them is growing in knowledge and depth of insight. What a message 
this is for people who are afraid that they're going to go to jail maybe tomorrow morning. Say, you know what, guys? Even in this spot, I realize they can't do anything to me. For me to live as Christ, to die is even better. They're very powerful words from prison. And they apply to us. Unless, I haven't checked all your ankles, I haven't seen any ankle bracelets, I think most of you are not incarcerated in some form this morning. We're not in prison. But these words have huge application. When we see things from the perspective that Paul is sharing, we begin to trust that God knows what he's doing. First, no matter where you are right now, no matter your weakness or your strength, your success or your failure, no matter if you've had the worst Christian week of your life last week, God will succeed with you. That's the promise of this text. God will succeed with you. Now, sometimes we don't hear that, so I'm going to say it and emphasize different words so you can hear it fully. God will succeed with you. And God will succeed with you. And God will succeed with you. God will succeed with you. All those things, you've got to hold that. You've got to hear that because that is the gospel. That because of what he's done, because of his death and resurrection and the life that he gives, it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you've, what you've blown and done wrong. God will succeed with you. As long as you come to Jesus in need and accept what he has to offer, he will succeed with you. It says in Romans 8.29, don't get lost in all the theological words, but for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Some people stop there and they, they go off on a mental tangent. Stay with me. <laughs> this just means God's going to do what God's going to do, and this is what he's going to do. He's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he's going to do, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God will make you like Jesus. There will come a day that the sign will go up, end of construction, thanks for your patience. This person looks like Jesus. Now, I don't know about your mirror. My mirror doesn't look like Jesus. Anybody look in the mirror and say, Jesus, you're a long ways from that. I, that's every day we struggle. But the point is not that we struggle. The point is that God has set us apart and he will finish what he started. And the beautiful thing is he will even take the junk and use it. That's, that's where God makes Satan really mad. He takes all your failures and turns them into things that glorify him. First Timothy 1, Paul writes this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, before you think Paul's just being falsely modest, he used to kill Christians. Okay? Most of you have not killed people for their faith. So Paul was worse than you if you want to have that kind of skill. He, he came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, because I was the worst... I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience for, as, as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Because I was the worst, because I messed up, because I did it all wrong. That's the very reason God said, that's the guy. Not because Paul had so much to offer, but because Paul had nothing to offer. If Paul could be transformed, anybody could be transformed. And he goes on, he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the God only wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. You see, in your, your very failures and your brokenness will be used in the process. I don't say, we don't need to continue in those. I'm not saying continue just messing it up so that God get, gets more glory. But I'm saying sometimes the things we've done wrong in the past weigh us down so much. 
And, and that's where Paul says you've got to grow in your knowledge and depth of insight of the love of God. The greatest of these is love, he would write to the Corinthians. God loved me, he says, when I was the, the worst of sinners. And that changed me. John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, got it too in 1 John four nineteen. He says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. That's why. That's why I think love is the transforming thing in our lives. We try to guilt ourselves into being better. We try to shame ourselves into being better. We try to will ourselves into being better. And it's actually the love of God, receiving the love at our deepest, darkest point, that actually makes us not want to be that way anymore. That's the way the gospel works. Receiving the love of God fully to your deepest, darkest corner is how God transforms that. And now these three remain, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. It's what makes everything work. That's why Paul would pray, not that I, I, you know, he could have prayed, I pray that your knowledge would grow in love. That would make sense. He could have prayed that, but he didn't pray that, did he? I pray that your love would grow in knowledge and depth of insight. He writes later to the Colossians, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues, put on love. Now that, we always think that means be loving. And I think it does mean be loving. But I think it also means be loved. Realize that God loves you because you're never going to be able to pull this stuff off if it's just you trying to do better. You're going to have to let God love you as you are. That's how you put those virtues on. See, Paul was seeing through a kingdom lens. He's confident of what God is doing despite what he sees around him in prison. He's clear on what to pray for, for the Philippians. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, you know, outwardly, we don't lose heart because outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what we see, but on what is unseen. Because what's seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He knows who God is. And that's going to build to that poem we're going to talk about next week. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. This picture of Jesus, who didn't grasp equality with God, but made himself a servant and was obedient even to death, death on a cross. See, he's building to that. That's what's given him the confidence. That's what's inspired him to understand the love of God, is this act of Jesus. That's what brings us to a table that reminds us again of the act of Jesus on our behalf. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. As I pray, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and the elders to come forward. We're, we're going to move right into communion because I want you to see how this fits beautifully with our text. Let's pray. God, we, we don't feel like saints. We don't feel perfect by any means. But I do pray that we could know that we are called, that we, as we come to you, we could trust that we've placed our life, our destiny, everything that we are in your hands. And today, as we come to this table, we just ask that you would remind us that it, it, it's not us doing, it's you inviting us to what you have done. And that you would nourish us with what you've done so that we can love the world the way that we've been loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Is the gospel. That's it. 
And I used to have a basketball coach and he would say, if that doesn't start your fire, then your wood is wet. And if, if that truth, the love that God has for you doesn't, it, you've got to be honest about your brokenness because his love needs to get there. But when it gets there, it transforms you in a way that nothing else can. And I pray that you go in the knowledge that the God who broke his body and poured out his blood loves you, has called you, and that he will finish what he has started in you. Amen.